Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Seski. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by John Nicholas, the CFO of the Phillies. As a quick reminder, this podcast is all about the playbooks behind the scenes by strategic financial leaders. So I'm very, very excited to go through John's career and how he became the CFO of the Phillies. John's been at the Phillies since 2003, but beforehand, he's been a part of some of the most storied firms and funds in the Philadelphia area. So I would love to hear about some of your early career decisions and walk me through how you came to this incredible position today. Happy to be here. So thanks for having me, Andrew. Been very uh, blessed in my life. I graduated from Westchester University, got a job right away with KPMG in my field of accounting. I uh, worked there for uh, four and a half years and then was, uh, got recruited out by Safeguard Scientifics as the accounting manager, a great company led by Pete Musser and you know, a host of other uh, wonderful people there in Wayne, PA, and uh, spent nine years on that campus um, working for Safeguard, uh, then working with Internet Capital Group with Walter Buckley and Ken Fox and Doug Alexander and several others, and, um, and then even another... Uh, portfolio company called logistics.com up in the Boston area. So after those fun nine years, I took a left turn in my career and had been introduced through the power of networking uh, to the Phillies. And when I initially went down there, I was just more than happy to brag to my friends in Northeast Philadelphia that I had gotten inside the vet. And uh, that turned into several interviews uh, with the same person who was then the CFO, Jerry Clothier, and then with nine other members of the Phillies front office at the time. And then I was offered uh, a job, which I started in you know, July 1 of 2003. Uh, so not exactly the, a straight line to the Phillies. You know, some people are in sports their whole career. Uh, I came up through, obviously, the accounting and financial arm of things. I uh, was hired basically because I had that experience, because I knew accounting, uh, because I knew finance, because I had done debt deals, and I love the Phillies. Uh, and you know, we could talk about that at some point, but uh, all those things led to getting hired. And now it's just about 20 years later and, and has been uh, quite a ride. So you said that you, you the position came about through the power of networking. Where do you attribute that uh, skill set from? Was it a certain mentor or somebody at KPMG early on that instilled that in you? Or has it always just been part of your personality type? I don't know if it's always been part of my personality type, but maybe it has. I'd have to ask my mom, <laughs> quite frankly, that. But, um, uh, you know, lots of mentors, including my dad. My dad was a machinist, but he was also involved in a, in a group called the Knights of Columbus. So he was a leader in that and he would travel around the state and you know, I could watch him conduct meetings or conduct himself at banquets and things like that. And uh, I always watched the way my dad uh, treated people, interacted with people, and really tried to listen and know their names and things like that. So I think he would certainly be a mentor in that regard. A lot of great training at KPMG. It was a phenomenal place. And then work when you work with someone like Pete Musser, Don Caldwell, Glenn Rieger, Walter Buckley, I mean, these are you know, it's be like a baseball player playing with a bunch of all-stars. And so I got to work with all these all-stars and learn from all these all-stars. And if you just soak up what you're watching and watch what really makes these people successful and effective, 
then you just try to emulate that. And that's really what I tried to do. And, you know, and then the Phillies, uh, obviously we had David Montgomery, you know, a legend in Philadelphia and, you know, a phenomenal person. Our CEO now is John Middleton. We are owned by the Middleton and Buck families, uh, some finer gentlemen you'll never, you'll, you know, you'll just never meet. And so it's, it's when I said, you know, when I've been blessed, I mean, you know, sometimes you get to the fork in the road, maybe you take, you take the wrong fork, the wrong part of the fork. I've been lucky that most times I've picked, got to a fork, it's worked out pretty well. And when you can work with great people, you know, it helps you just become a better person. So there are a lot of aspiring CFOs who listen to the podcast pretty regularly as well, or a lot of financial leaders. It seems that you were able to uh, continue to be, be just fearlessly curious into the uh, you know, the jobs you've chosen. And I know that probably stemmed from KPMG working with a bunch of different types of companies. Definitely, I didn't at Capital Group working with a bunch of different companies. Uh, what was one of the consistent things that you felt uh, gave you the courage to you know, use all of the uh, everything that you had learned, you know, from the table stakes of financial acumen, and then be confident enough to make those consistent changes? And what would you tell uh, an aspiring CFO, uh, you know, how to uh, be able to not be afraid of the diversity of you know, types of opportunities that could come their way? Because I know you said you loved your KPMG experience, could have mm-hmm. seen yourself as a partner there someday. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, do you have any advice for aspiring CFOs? Well, um, I mean, it, it's, it's advice for aspiring CFOs. I think it's advice in general uh, for really any career. And I've always been fortunate to have an occupational curiosity and, uh, and, a, and a willingness to do anything. Um, which goes back to being a teenager. I mean, I sold pretzels on the street corners of Philadelphia. When I sold out on my pretzels, I would help the flower guy, even though I made no money from the flower guy. But I had nothing else to do other than wait for the guy to pick me up who dropped me off in the morning. So I might as well be productive. You get to know people. And again, I watched my dad just, you know, he was no titan of industry or anything, but just watched the way he approached things. And um, so... You know, occupational curiosity, uh, the willingness to do whatever. Um, I worked in an Acme Markets for seven years in Northeast Philadelphia, and and I became known as somebody who would do anything. And that's why I, I bagged groceries. I was a cashier. I was a produce guy. I even got my own knife, which was pretty special. You know, I would work the night crew. I'd use the scrubber at night. You know, I mean, so you just, the more you do, the more you learn. And I'm not saying I did all those things well, because uh, I certainly crashed the, the scrubber machine, but... You know, and that just extended into my career. And then, you know, it was always pretty clear that if you worked hard and were somebody who got things done, that there would be opportunities. And my best analogy in baseball is if you can hit, they'll find a place for you in the lineup. Hmm. And so, you know, uh, and, you know, my dad always told me and my mom, you know, just outwork everybody around you and, and you'll be fine. Let's talk about your relationship with baseball for a minute. Sure. Uh, there, everyone has this visceral uh, understanding of, you know, early days of their first experiences with baseball. Uh, it's tied to you know, the American dream and, you know, who we are in our DNA of our country and a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, was this always part of the plan to 
uh, to land with a Philadelphia sports team? Was that in the back of your head ever? Or, um, you know, what were some of your early uh, relationships with the sport? And then um, tell us about the early days, because you weren't hired as the CFO of the Phillies in 2003, right? You worked correct. your way up. That's okay. correct. Yeah. Uh, so, I look, I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. I've been a baseball fan, an Eagles fan, Phillies fan, Flyers fan, Sixers fan, Union fan, Wings fan. USFL, you know, uh, everything. I'm, I'm just, uh, I love sports. One son has a name in honor of hockey and one son has a name in honor of baseball. So as far as personally, it's either watching Sunday games at my Aunt Ann's house, because when I was real small, I think the Phillies games were only on on Sundays on TV. So that's where we would watch the games. Other than that, it was on the radio at night in my room. Every kid on my street wanted to be, you know, this player, that player. I wanted to be Pete Rose as a player. So it's just been in my blood forever. My first game was, I think I was 11 when I went to my first game. I, it was Knights of Columbus Day on a Sunday and there was a picnic area in right field at Veterans Stadium. And, and, uh, and that was a lot of fun. But no, I, I, didn't, I, never, uh, I never really thought about working in sports. Um, I shouldn't say never, but I, it was not a, it was not top of mind to work in sports. Uh, I got the job at KPMG. Uh, again, my parents were always a big fan of take care of your knitting. So as far as I was concerned, I was going to be the best employee ever at KPMG. And then when I got hired at Safeguard, I was going to be the best employer ever at Safeguard, best employer I could be. Uh, and so I never really looked too far ahead. Uh, I wasn't really looking for the next job. I wasn't trying to build my resume, you know, to get to the next thing. My dad was a big believer. If you took care of business today, it would take care of business tomorrow. Um, and again, he was a blue collar machinist. I mean, uh, so, but so these are just basic things. And so you just take care of what you're doing. I actually audited the Phillies when I was at KPMG, uh, 92 and 93. Uh, so I did actually get in the vet as an auditor. Um, but then I got hired 10 years later to be the number two guy, as you point out, um, which was part of the deal. I mean, uh, Jerry Clothier, wonderful guy, and he was about what my age is now. And he was very focused on succession. And he wanted to hire somebody who could be a number one. And I had already been a CFO, but was willing to come in as number two and help clean up some things in the back office and they were moving into a new stadium, so there were new revenue opportunities, larger revenue, uh, some bank reporting that was new, uh, raising some debt, which was new. So I had to kind of check my ego a bit at the door, right, um, and be that number two guy. And, and it was really great because having him around for all those years taught me a lot. I actually created a binder for me when I started with some basic information about the history of the Phillies and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, so, no, I, you know... I didn't really foresee it, quite frankly, but now that I look back on 20 years, it's kind of hard to imagine my life without it. That's amazing. I, I want to talk about um, how you define success personally with the team. There's so much data now available and it, there are so many games played in a year that the players at least have a constant feedback loop of performance. Hmm. What does success look like you, for you personally? And then also, what does it look like outside of wins and losses? Well, uh, for me personally, it's always been pretty simple. Uh, and some of the people I work with, they know this. I have a habit on Friday nights of looking back and 
and, and saying, did I take good care of my employer and did I take good care of my family? And there are definitely times where I look back and say, and my kids are older now, but okay, I could have gotten to one more game. I'll try to do that next week, that kind of thing. Or uh, Andrew called and I didn't call him back. Mm. And I'm a big fan of being responsive and getting back to people. And so uh, that would probably lead me to sitting in my car when I got home, texting Andrew saying, sorry, happy to talk over the weekend, or I'll give you a call Monday kind of thing. So that's that's success for me. If, if all of my personal stakeholders are happy, then then I'm successful. Who are some of the stakeholders that we wouldn't know exist? You've got, obviously, you mentioned uh, the family ownership mm -hmm. of the team. You've got players, your finance team. We talked a little bit about some of the changes you made during the pandemic at lunch. Mm -hmm. But who are some of those stakeholders that we wouldn't think of uh, from the outside looking in? Um, so internally, it's every department in the company. And I mean, I, I, I oversee finance, uh, but I also oversee business analytics and I oversee our operation at Baycare Ballpark down in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, so it's, I don't know, five dozen full-time people plus a host of you know game day employees in Clearwater and so forth. So those are all very, very important stakeholders. All the customers of those people are stakeholders. So some of those customers are public. So if you go to Baycare Ballpark, fans coming to see spring training games, fans coming to see uh, Threshers games, which is our single A team down in Clearwater, they're the public stakeholders, if you will. And then you have the internal stakeholders, which are all of the employees, um, and and then all of our vendors, all of our suppliers, people like our bankers, uh, our auditors, our tax accountants. Uh, I mean, the list, the list, quite frankly, it goes on and on and on. Um, you know, our minor league teams. So, you know, so it's it's a it's a long, long list of uh, stakeholders. You know, at the end of the day. You know, why do we exist? I mean, we're, you know, some people would describe us as we're not a publicly held company, you know, like Comcast or an Aramark, but we are a public institution. So we are caretakers of a really important for us and for a lot of people, uh, a really important public institution, a very prominent institution, something that is really important to a lot of people. And if no one ever believed that, just look at all the people that showed up in the parade in 2008, all the people who said they cried when Bryce Harper hit the home run against the Padres, how the building shook when he hit that home run. We know it's important. Um, and a lot, most of us know it's important because we grew up here. I mean, I could look around the management team and most of us grew up in Philadelphia. We're, we're incredibly tied to the community. You know, John Middleton himself was, grew up a fan. I mean, he, he's a fan of the Phillies, the Eagles, Sixers, et cetera. So, um, you know, it, when you know that, when you are that, and you then uh, take the time to say, okay, uh, are we taking care of the fans? And so there's, there is no more important stakeholder for us than our fans. We have a saying uh, at Enthrown, but we'll go into that another time about, you know, who our stakeholders are and how we prioritize your know, customers employees and investors and how we think about it culturally in that order. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about is sort of the uh, the hyper performance of most of these people in this organization, whether they're on the management side or athletes themselves. What does conflict resolution look like when you've got uh, some incredibly successful people who I'm sure are very opinionated 
And what, how do you continue to iterate on how to communicate effectively across all of those stakeholders when everyone is very successful at what they do? Well, I think we're fortunate actually in 2023 because there are definitely some means of communication that didn't exist when I started my career. When I started my career, I would carry around a Macintosh SE30 that weighed as much as I do to various audits. You know, now we have a lot of, you know, <clears throat> a lot of technology, not just email, texting, Slack, you know, whatever it is. So there are multiple ways to, to communicate and stay in touch. Conflict is normal. Uh, conflict can be good. It's not necessarily, a, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, people will disagree. Uh, in a lot of, in most organizations, hopefully the way it works is it's a democracy until it's a dictatorship, right? Because at some point somebody ultimately has to play referee and or decide. And then a lot of times those are the same thing. But, you know, by working at different places like KPMG and Safeguard and Internet Capital Group, and look, look at what Safeguard and, IC and Internet Capital Group did. I mean, we invested in various companies. We divested of certain companies. We helped operate certain companies. There were loads of decisions and there were investment committees. There was all kind of conflict. People can disagree. And I think that's an important thing to realize over your career is just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean they don't like you. It just means they have a different perspective. And you just need to hear each other out. And at the end of the day, if you need a referee, you go to the higher authority. Everyone knows who that is. That's important to know that, that everyone does know who that is. And then they can make a decision. And hopefully they hear both perspectives or, or could be more than two. And, and then they make a decision. But then what's important is once that decision is made, it's like, it's like being below the admiral on the ship. Once the decision is made, everybody follows that decision. And you're not grumbling you know, down in the boiler room about what the admiral decided. You're, that's what the admiral decided, so that's, that's what we're doing. And, and so that's, that's actually an important, pretty important characteristic uh, to, to, to be able to do that. Because um, when you have an ego, and most people who make the C-suite have some sort of, some level of ego, when you don't follow what you think we should be doing, that can be, you know, that can bother you, you know, for lack of a better word. But over time, hopefully sometimes you know, it does go your way and sometimes it's not. And actually sometimes when it doesn't go your way, it's a good thing because then you look back at it a week later or two weeks later or a month later and you say, wow, you know, good thing they didn't go my direction. You know, that would have been a train wreck kind of thing. Um, so that's the benefit of multiple perspectives with people that have multiple types of experiences and, you know, good effective leaders will listen to all those inputs, but then good effective leaders will ultimately make a decision and expect everybody to, everybody on the ship to, you know, fall in line and execute. Right. And that makes you a good team member too. Sure. Sure. That's part of being a good, that's part of being a good teammate. I mean, look, I coached Little League and not every, everybody wanted to play shortstop. I had 10 shortstops, right? So, but you need one. And then when you have people at other positions, you know, and you're, and you're teaching kids uh, and sometimes their parents uh, about, you know, being a proper teammate and, and that you need everyone to play their role, even though guys on the bench, they need to play a role. Um, so yes, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely part of being a good teammate. So just this week even, and I've been getting hounded with questions to ask, is there anything that you wanted to share about how your decision-making process works when it comes to making 
trade-offs with uh, large contracts. There are different uh, different methodologies, and maybe you have some that are ingrained from uh, big four auditing uh, or maybe in investing. But is there a framework that you operate in and how you measure trade-offs? We don't have to go into anything specific about contracts or how those are negotiated, but uh, do you have an operating framework that you rely on that's consistent? Uh, so when I try to negotiate, and again, I don't negotiate player contracts, uh, that would be fun, but uh, our baseball people, you know, Dave Dombrowski, Sam Fole, those guys, uh, Ned Rice, they handle all those types of things. But, you know, there are, there are bank agreements, there are other, all kinds of other agreements in any kind of business. And again, I, I, I used to be in, in a couple companies uh, that did a lot of deals. And so to me, the important thing is to make sure that you and, and your business counterparts, let's just say it's a bank deal, right? So you're dealing with a banker or bankers. It's important that you come to agreement on the business terms and don't try to negotiate the business terms in the agreements. And, and so that may sound simple, but I've seen lots of deals go sideways because all of a sudden people start to negotiate terms by redlining the agreement. And so, you know, that's not a, that's not an efficient way, by the way, to spend uh, legal dollars, you know, legal fees. Mm. But so it's really just, you know, getting to know the people you're working with, uh, whether they're internal or external. What are our goals? What are we trying to accomplish? And what did we agree on? And then maybe, you know, maybe you document that in an email with some bullets. But that's really what's been effective, you know, throughout. As I've seen, again, I joined Safeguard 1994. And I learned a lot of good things from a lot of good deal people by working on those deals. And I, th I think, you know, over the, over the years, that's that's created this quilt for me that uh, serves me well in terms of, you know, doing transactions like that. And then and then the other important thing from a business perspective, in my opinion, is that once you get there, and then the lawyers draft things, is is to carefully read it. And I know again that sounds very simple. But the, the, what the lawyers deserve is that you do carefully read it, make sure it reflects the business terms, and, and make sure that you don't foresee any you know, hiccups in the way uh, it's documented. So that, that, that's how I would answer that question. So you referred to some of the people that you've worked for in the past as all-stars, uh, great investors, great founders. What's a, a great definition today for a modern CFO? Uh, it, it probably reflected in some of these all-star tendencies that you've described from some of the people that you've worked for. There are definitely some characteristics that can make uh, a successful executive and then especially a successful uh, CFO. I used a phrase earlier my dad would use, which is take care of your knitting. So there's certain basic knitting to every CFO's role. I mean, they're responsible for accounting. They're probably responsible for planning, budgeting, treasury. I'm sure I'm leaving some out, but, you know, payroll, those are basic things and don't sound like, for a lot of people, very exciting things, but they are exciting when they go wrong. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, we're, we're sort of like umpires, the really good umpires in baseball. Nobody knows who their names are, and I don't want to call any names here, but, you know, the people who watch a lot of baseball games, they know who the bad umpires are, and they know them by name. You know, we refer, in our finance group, refer to it as the wheel of commerce, and it just needs to keep turning, and it can't turn too fast. It'll spin out, or it can't go too slow for the obvious reason. So you have the you have the basics, and then in terms of being CFO, you know, how do you interact with the rest of the organization? How do you interact with those external stakeholders that we talked about earlier? You know, communication, 
um, being knowledgeable, being aware of you know, what's going on in the world. You know, how do you stay up on, you know, current events uh, in a non-biased way? It's kind of a challenge these days. But you know, all those things, right? You're you're expected to be a significant uh, part of the C-suite team, and so how do you how do you support uh, the C-suite and quite frankly everybody else in the organization? So. Uh, you know, technology has played a role, as I mentioned, the last 20 years, just, you know, whether it's communication tools, expense reporting tools, accounting and planning tools, treasury tools, the migration in the last 20, 30 years to the cloud, uh, way back when that was called, uh, you know, software as, a, software as a solution or something like that. Anyway, application, uh, application service providers, that's what they were called in the late 90s, but it's all the same. It's you know, software that's out there delivered on the cloud, not client server. So how do you take advantage of that? So it's really important to have a strong technology team, which we're fortunate to have at the Phillies. And so it's really, I view the CFO role in a lot of ways as a, just a major league dot connector. Hmm. And you're trying to connect all the dots of the organization and make sure the lines between them are as solid as the others and that everything's flowing. It's kind of like neurons in the brain. Things are just flowing the way they're supposed to flow. And, and you keep it flowing. And um, you know, make sure everyone knows what you know. Make sure you try to know what they know. You know you're a rower, so you know, just grab your oar and row. <laughs> <laughs> what role does uh, distraction play in, uh, when you're in a public institution, especially one in Philadelphia? Everyone has very strong, uh, emboldened opinions. <laughs> and you know, there's fame and celebrity involved. And how do you keep uh, distraction uh, away from internal operations uh, when you're, again, such a public and uh, passionate group? Yeah, well, look, we're, we're all fortunate, right? We get to walk in every day, you look up, big green letters, say Citizens Bank Park. Um, it's a neat environment. Uh, we work with some great people. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, I just used a rowing analogy. But, you know, everyone's got to get in the boat and, and row. And at the end of the day, you got to do your job. So can it be distracting? Uh, yes. Uh, I would tell you that working, in, working for me personally, the lows are much lower and the highs are no higher, hmm. uh, which is uh, maybe that gets better in the next 20 years. But in the first 20 years, that's what I've experienced. And there have been some real highs. I mean, I mentioned a few of them and, of course, winning the World Series and all kinds of things. But um, you can, I can tend to sometimes take it personally that the Phillies just lost, you know, that so-and-so just blew a save. You know, Alvarado gives up a home run. It was my fault, uh, which, and I have nothing to do with it, but, you know, it's, I know it's not my fault, but I feel like it's my fault. And then, so, but what I've also trained myself to do over time, because initially it annoyed me, but I just trained myself. Everybody wants to talk about it most of the time. I go to a cocktail party. I go to a christening, I go wherever I go. Everyone knows I work at the Phillies. They want to ask me about Reese Hoskins' injury or Harper's recovery or, you know, why did Rob Thompson, you know, put this guy in center field, not that guy. Um, and again, for a few weeks in 2003, I'm like, you know, I can't answer. I don't know the answers to these questions. Um, but I just think, I just uh, embraced it, really. And I, I love the fact that people are interested. I'll talk about it. I go back to what I said earlier about different perspectives. So, you know, they may not agree that so-and-so played center field, but I can assure you that Rob Thompson 
had his reasons, and it's not always going to work out. I mean, it's just, it's not a video game. I mean, you can have the best lineup out there, and, you know, pitcher outdoes them. I mean, it, it, it happens. It happens all the time. You know, that's, that's to me, one of the, it can be one of the downsides of working in sports, for, but that's for me personally. I don't know if that applies to, you know, a lot of people. Are there market cycles to baseball? And what is it like to prepare strategically and financially for a World Series run? Uh, well, there are definite cycles. Uh, maybe not if you're the Dodgers who have made the postseason 10 years in a row. But, <clears throat> you know, some some years we our team performs better than others. At the end of the day, it's all about the team. The reason the Phillies exist is to try to win the World Series every, every year. And if we could do that, that would be the absolute ultimate. When you have 30 teams, that's not likely. And so you just try to give yourself the best opportunity to get there. As you've seen in our sport and even in other sports, every all teams pretty much go through cycles where they're very good for a while. Maybe they're not so good for a while. So it's a lot easier, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we sold out 257 games in a row. And it's pretty easy uh, to project ticket and concession revenue when you know the stadium is going to be sold out every night. When you go into a downturn, uh, like we had in some previous years uh, prior to 2019, it can be challenging uh, because you, it's hard to guess. Well, how's the team going to do? And, you know, therefore, are people going to come out? Um, are they going to spend their money? So planning for a World Series that you mentioned, I would tell you that if, if we were having this conversation last year on Memorial Day, I'm not sure I would have been planning for a World Series because we were 21 and 29, I think was our record. We had just changed our manager, and then we won 10 straight games. And all of a sudden, we're 500. And all of a sudden, hey, you know what? We can make a real run at being a wild card team. And that came right from our president of baseball ops, Dave Dombrowski. So he said, great. You know, so I'm a believer that all is well till it's not. So I believed from that moment on that we were going to make the postseason. Uh, I'm not telling you I didn't have moments in the next several months where, you know, we blew a save or somebody struck out looking with a runner on base in the ninth inning where I didn't get upset uh, and think, okay, maybe this is not going to happen. But then it happens. And thankfully, many of us have been through it before. Uh, there's a lot of work that has to be done in a very, very short period of time to host and be involved in the playoffs. And it takes an incredible village, quite frankly, to do it. And we have a great village uh, to do it. Now looking forward, uh, most exciting to you in the next 12 months and then maybe a little bit further out, maybe the next three to five years. Well, I look forward to when Bryce Harper comes back from his injury uh, because every at bat is like must see TV. So that's really short term, hopefully. And that's not a prediction. I mean, hopefully he's back in a few months. Uh, I would like to repeat as a, a playoff participant, and I would like for us to win two more games in the World Series. And so that's that's my hope for the next several months. Next three to five years, I would say, um, I hope we can maintain a consistently competitive team because what the fans of Philadelphia have proven time and time again for decades is that when the Phillies perform on the field, they, they want to come out. They want to be part of it. And 
you know, when we have home games, it's like throwing a dinner party at your house. I mean, all you really, you want people to come and have a good time. You, you're not going to win every game. That's, you know, that's silly to think, that's naive to think you could do that. But um, you just, you want to see the place full, you want, or, or at least mostly full. And the, fa- and the players want that, right? If you're a player, you feed off that energy. I mean, just listen to what a lot of them said after the playoffs last year and just the energy level that was in the stadium and in the, and in the town. And so, you know, if we can remain uh, a, com- a consistently competitive team and every year have a chance to make the postseason, then we'll continue to have those good crowds. We'll continue to have uh, motivated, you know, uh, inspired players by, you know, by those fans. And, and it'll all work in concert. And so that's what I hope continues for the next X number of years. I won't say three to five. Hopefully it lasts forever. And I hope uh, no pressure on my oldest son and his wife, but I, I hope to have a grandchild maybe in the next three to five years. <laughs> I always like to conclude on um, a topic that it can go in any direction, but I always ask CFOs what they feel is underestimated in the world today. And again, it can be about baseball or about really anything, but the diversity of perspectives is always fascinating to me because we're across different industries and public and private companies and stress levels are typically very high. But (laughs) is there anything uh, that you feel personally is underestimated in the world? Well, I think something that can be underestimated in the world of sports is just how complicated the games can be and how complicated the operations behind the games can be. Uh, I enjoy soccer. I used to have union season tickets. I have a, you know, a friend who's the COO down there. Great guy, great stadium. And, you know, I used to watch the games and I don't really, I never played, so I don't really know a lot. And somebody had to explain, you know, offsides and those kinds of things. But I had an opportunity one time to stand behind what is essentially their general manager, you know, uh, I don't remember the title, but it's the person in charge of soccer operations. And this guy and, and his right-hand person talk throughout the game, and I, I only listened to them. Hmm. I barely even watched the game because they were watching a different game. They were talking about how somebody was two feet out of position, how this guy should be running here, how this guy should be running there. They're just watching a different game. And in baseball, there are so many things going on with positioning and there are so many decisions that the coaching staff, that the players have to make, you know, in seconds. Sometimes, you know, you make a decision to swing or not, and I think it's 0.4 seconds or something. So it's it's just a lot of stuff going on. And then behind the scenes, because I used to go to a lot of games and then I started working there. And, you know, all I thought about was my hot dog and my beer and, you know, whatever. And then you realize that there aren't just 25 players, there are 300 players. There are players all throughout the minor leagues in, the, in Latin America, primarily in the Dominican Republic. And it's just hundreds of people behind the scenes making this thing go. And so I think in my, in my sport, I think that's a very underestimated thing. And, and I, this may sound too general, but I think in the world, just general decency. And what I mean by that is, you know, again, go back to my parents, doesn't matter how smart you are, but you control how you treat people. And so everybody's important. I don't care if they're the CEO, I don't care if they're, you know, uh, you know, somebody who's you know, mopping the floor or whatever. We're all, we're all playing a role. We're all doing our best, hopefully. Uh, we're all helping the organization. And so try to learn the names, try to say hello, try to say good morning. I think all those things can sometimes 
be overlooked, but I, I, to me, I think they're incredibly important. And you know, I, I would like to see. Maybe it's not underestimated. Maybe it's maybe it's just we need more decency and 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 some more civility in the world, and quite frankly, in the U.S. People always forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Right? Amen. Well, John, this has been so much fun. Thank you for joining the Modern CFO podcast, and I hope we can stay in touch. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Uh, Great being here. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.